Hello and welcome to the BME podcast. I'm Maurice Gordon. I'm your host today. I'm the uh, chair of the editorial committee for BME uh, and I'm sitting today in my host uh, organisation, University of Central Lancashire, and I'm delighted to be joined by a couple of my colleagues from our local BME International Collaborating Centre. To my left, I have Dawn Gerbert, who's the acting director for the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. Hello, Dawn. Hello. And to my right, I have Elaine Hill, who's a senior lecturer from the School of Health Sciences and also uh, is a member of our local BIC. Hello, Elaine. Hello. Uh, And today we're going to talk about uh, some top tips for doing your own focused or perhaps rapid systematic review in health education. Uh, And to really introduce where we're standing on this, we've both um, uh, got two projects that, that... I've worked with you both on separately, that essentially I would define as being relatively focused systematic reviews. And that focus wasn't accidental. It was born out of need. It was born out of desire. It was born out of goals. But it was very well thought out. And in doing so, it offers, I think, a more focused and useful um, output, a utility to the reader, but um, removes a lot of the barriers that we often hear for people who are looking at sometimes mammoth and extremely high quality but quite daunting beamy reviews. So given your local experiences working with me and, and the outputs that I think um, stand up and prove this, what we thought we'd do is distill 10 top tips from our experiences for those of you who are looking to do a review that perhaps is um, of a scope or a size or a scale that is something maybe a bit more achievable or even um, is done in a time frame that is uh, um, a quick turnaround and perhaps is more traditional. So on that note, uh, I thought we could... Uh, uh, get cracking with the first tip if that sounds all right to you so so, uh, we're going to share these out first one's for me tip number one is know the existing reviews so uh, given that BME has been uh, in the game now for 20 years uh, and systematic review in health education is absolutely uh, increasing exponentially uh, it's really rare now to find a situation where there's no reviews at all in either your area or related area and I actually think that's a real strength Um, The example that springs to mind is the first BEAM review, which was on simulation. It's now getting close to 15 years old and is one of the most cited pieces of health education literature ever and has amazing strength. It's probably been more responsible than any other piece in the entire health education economy across the globe in causing massive change in practice, uh, massive investment in local stakeholder and uh, projects to meet strategic challenges. But in some ways... Now that that's established, there are major gaps that lend themselves to different areas of development. And by reading and fully embracing that fantastic review, it can almost be the precursor to a natural development of what I would term, as is in this podcast, a focused or a rapid review. And an example may be, if you're looking at simulation as a whole, you may come up with a, a particular question, such as, well, what sort of vignettes have been used or are the most Um, cost-effective or the best utility for a given local problem. So it's a much more defined question and it's one that that we follow nicely and link into uh, the previous work but actually in itself is a new question and by knowing that existing literature, where it pointed, what it found, what it didn't find, you can to some extent direct yourself appropriately, save yourself time if you're wasting it on a question that's already been answered and also allow you to make sure that you're adding to a narrative, a narrative that's useful to the reader, that they start at the point that the literature is, they read your piece and they know where where literature is going. And I think doing work in isolation, which is often a temptation, um, is something we should try and avoid in systematic review. I don't know what uh, what you think about that. I think it's impossible to do by itself, actually. Because you actually need different people's views to, I suppose, inform your own sort of way of looking at things as well. Because 
it's very easy to look at something and think, oh, that's very good or it's very bad. And actually, it's only with you know that discussion with somebody else. I think it's way. good to have a question and approach, and we all question from different places with a different background knowledge and with a different lens, both educationally and in practice terms. So I agree that collaboration is absolutely central to the process. And I suppose it links in uh, quite appropriately in terms of a very important piece of the systematic review process to our next pair of tips that that Elaine's (coughs) going to present, which are about situating that away from the outside world and the outside scientific literature in the educational world to actually where we are locally. So perhaps if I hand over to you for tip number two, Elaine. Okay. So tip number two is to think of the local context The systematic review that I was involved in in, was around handover education within healthcare. And I'm working in a university where we have healthcare professionals training from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, We've got medicine, we've got dentistry, we've got all different branches of nursing, operating department practice... um, paramedics, physiotherapists, all sorts of different people. And all of those different professions have to actually do a handover. So it's something where logically there should be a good range of literature involving a a number of different populations and a number of different contexts. And it's also very, very relevant to all of those people. Because we you know we, we have a lot of people that will find that information useful. And we did limit uh, in the review to uh, hand over within acute care just to make it manageable um, but there is a there is a lot out there on you know across the board well and I think you know it's an interesting point you've just made at the end there that we, we made a limitation that limitation was acute care environments and there was an element of that that was pragmatic yes resource wise but actually I come back to your tip in terms of the local context we had, this was the learning environment where handover was most often being um, seen. Yeah. Our trainees were feeling, in all the health professions, as they were saying to you when you first came to yeah. us with the idea, to redo this, that, that they didn't feel they had that support. And so coming up with a solution to look yeah. at evidence based on that context had a local contextual need. Yeah. And I think that links on beautifully to your yeah, next, point. next point. Yes, yeah, so tip number three is... Yeah, thinking of the local problem as you say, does, does link in very closely because one of the things that's noticeable is that within the various courses that we run, there isn't any handover training. But everybody's expected to learn to do it, so they're, they're somehow expected to absorb this information by some kind of process of osmosis, by going into practice, by watching people, by simply progressing from year one to year two to year three, but without any actual educational input. And... There are lots of different ways that it's being done. Uh, some handovers you can sit in in nursing that will go on for you know, an hour and a half and you've lost the world to live at the end of it. Um, and at the other extreme you can get one that takes you know, half a minute. So very, very relevant to the, those populations that we've got training here. Um, and links in very closely as well with issues around patient safety because of that importance of handing over correct information. And one of the things that's come out of this now is can we actually build some training into our, our programmes that's, you know, is it's been directly, I suppose, kind of inspired by having that literature review. Well, I think as well as inspired by, I think very much taken its 
it's a call to arms from the findings, not just that this sort of stuff works, which is one element one can look at, we'll touch on a bit later, but also what works and how it works and why. So you're actually almost coming with a blueprint. And because we came in with a local problem, yeah. and we limited to that local problem, we come up with a local solution. And, and, and I think the, the key thing to both those tips is an ex- acceptance, unlike... Systematic review we might see in the world of Cochrane, for example, where you know I also work, and we're looking at quantitative solutions, but we don't tend to come up with a conclusion saying this particular drug's fine, but it's only fine for a UK population, or it's only fine for this sort of ages. We rarely make those conclusions. We sometimes find subgroup analysis that suggests these variances in efficacy, but these are almost accidental. That isn't the case in education. I think the very conceit to social science of any um, um, perspective in any setting in any form is that there will always be contextual variances and I think this is why the the realist review has gained such um, support as a as a ideal albeit the realities as um, those who've listened to one of our other podcasts might have heard Jeff Wong who who is very much a leader in that area and it's not the same as what what the plan is but it's because it links that context to what works for whom where and I think people find that intoxicating you can get that seem realist um, utility by doing it the way you did it by making something that is for a solution to a problem we need so the actual answer for our review is great for the wider world but actually you needed it for us and that brings me to tip number four, which is incredibly important in any form of focused or rapid review, uh, or in fact any review um, itself, and in many ways is the way you become a focused review or not. And that is to pilot a search and to scope uh, a search. And we talk about this increasingly with importance in BME at the early stages. It, it's almost the first thing you should do before you even write a protocol. Um, and it links into all the previous tips. You need to know what reviews are out there to um, uh, to look at how you're going to plan your search in terms of its size and scope you need to know those local contexts to know what you're searching for and the local problems that almost become that first question that question can't be confirmed or or finalized until you do scoping so it is part of the question re-question cycle and when we train on beamy type techniques we talk about that so if we look at the example we gave with handover when we first started piloting the searches we actually didn't do that limitation to acute and um, what we found is that limitation, as well as being relevant, actually it removed a large, unmanageable amount of unrelevant literature. If you recall, I think the original search had close to fifty or 60,000 citations. And the hit rate, so the amount of papers that were even potentially relevant versus the number of citations, I think on that first go was about one in 800. I think we went through five full pages before we came up with one paper. It's a ridiculous amount. <laughs> and, and so that limitation comes back to where you started. It was a practical one. It wasn't just resource in terms of uh, the fact that we didn't have it it's the efficiency of resources part of the review process reviews can be like handovers can be mind-numbing and to the point where you lose enthusiasm if they don't have uh, that practical almost that titillation of success that comes from seeing exciting and potentially relevant papers now i'm not proposing you do a search with one term that comes up with 50 results there is a middle ground with everything but this is where you can play with that this is where you can truly scope and this concept of the hit rate thinking about how many citations from a pilot search that you put in with different terms, perhaps considering, like you would in a search for for a quantitative medical systematic review, the participants or the population, the intervention or teaching or assessment you're looking at, the comparison, if relevant, and the outcome measures mentioned, looking at each of those terms, doing a pilot search, and seeing where you are situated. And if there is anything that's relevant, and using that to inform further refinement is important. And then as you go through that scoping search, you can start to put some of the limitations that you think are needed 
for that local context, that local problem, but also the local realities uh, of the, of the search itself. And what you end up with is this beautiful, um, viable question with need behind it, with an answer that is likely to have good implications for practice and for teachers, but is in a size and a scale you can deal with. And you're not doing what I've seen many people unfortunately fall into before we used to push this, which is starting with the best of intentions, but as you get two, three, four, five hundred papers down the line, realising that you're drowning under the reality, but also that actually the more papers you add, you're, you're not coming up with anything more useful. And you think back and think, my gosh, why didn't I just limit things that it was more relevant in the first place? Many people have made that mistake. Uh, and even our esteemed chair of BME would be the first to admit that, that when she did a phenomenal review looking at the OSCE, a lot more of the conclusions came from talking about the limitations of the huge amount of literature that came out of it, rather than actual findings that that literature indicated, because there was just so, so much. It was just hard to make those conclusions. Uh, so I think that's probably the most vital tip that brings together the first three. And on that note, we'll move you on to tip five, Dawn. Well, it's interesting that you've just been talking about practical aspects with that one, because tip five is very, very practically based, and that is to have a clear project lead and an engaged team for a focus period. Although doing the review is essentially an academic endeavour, it is also managing a project, and I think that element of it cannot be underestimated. We were talking earlier amongst ourselves about what sort of time does it take to do one of these reviews successfully, and it's entirely possible to do a very successful and extensive review in three months if the if the project is clearly led. So what do we mean by clear project leading? Well, actually, we're talking about having one person who takes control of the process, who does some planning over time, who looks at the sequence of events and which members of the team need to be called in to review or add to work at different times, and then keeps in a, a driving seat around that and keeps managing the process, keeps the process moving along. I think that's really, really important. Everybody does these around other activities in their working life. So to have somebody who's clearly focused that every week every few days they're looking at where the project's up to how do we need to move it on encouraging people to respond in a timely way that has a number of benefits one of the benefits being that this review will stay at the top of the team's mind so actually when they come down to review the work they'll do it much more quickly and efficiently because it's still in mind you don't have to do that additional work of reconnecting with an ongoing study that study is there in your mind So it's an incredibly effective use of time to do it that way. It's very good in maintaining enthusiasm. It's very good in terms of getting something ready for publication, having a piece of work that can be initiated, worked through and completed within a set time is a very empowering thing. So how do you actually manage that in practical terms? Well, yes, there's keeping on top of it, but the other aspect is thinking about what else is happening within that time frame. And we would strongly recommend that you look for a period for your review when people can give a reasonable commitment over that time. It doesn't mean a huge amount of time every week, but it does mean consistent engagement so that one member of the team or other members of the team are not waiting for a single response. And that's really important. So we feel as a group, on reflection, it would be good to advise that the person who's leading the project endeavours to take no leave over that period so that they can be responsible for that, continue to stay in forward momentum of it until we reach the end point. I, I, I think that's probably um, practically the most important tip. 
Uh, that two or three months, and I think the point you made there is it is not that we're asking for a year or two. If you take a two or three month period, you look at people's diaries and say, we can do this now. It's not the middle of exam season. It's not the middle of leave season. I'm here for that time. You're here for most of it. You're here for most of it. We can then be, as you said, responsive, constantly going. It is so much more efficient. And so many of the reviews that I edit and I support in Beamy that we're having difficulty. You can see how they fall in, into that negative spiral. That's no one's fault particularly. But because someone went off on leave, maybe unexpected health leave or uh, happy leave, maternity and similar, you lose a project lead. Someone else has to re-engage. They have to re-equate themselves. You then have that period while that's going on with the rest of the t- team. Disengage, have to be re-engaged. And without that coordination, it ends up taking so long, but it's genuinely not efficient use of time. It's retreading the same ground. And as you absolutely said, and we found on both our reviews, for that just sustained short period, if you do it with small amounts, small bursts of ongoing work, it's more efficient for everyone. And actually, you get far more bang for that small buck of time you put in. Because when we sat down and we talked about it, honestly, hand on heart, I don't think any one of us, for both of these reviews, one of them published, one of them under peer review, and we, we think both of them of good quality, has put in individually more than between 20 and 40 hours of work. And you think, how many academic papers of original works, albeit synthesis original works, can you publish in other areas, in other fields, that for mm-hmm. such little time commitment can give you a true original paper? I, I think it really is unprecedented, and it's one of the great strengths of systematic review as a door into publishing. Hugely effective. Yeah. Hugely effective. Correct. Okay, and that brings me nicely on to, to tip two, uh, tip six, sorry, which is if you're going to move on and you're going to have this strategy, what do you want to do in terms of with that time? And it's really a question of synthesis. So this is about thinking about your choices of synthesis and really a plea to move past works in systematic review and education that simply ask whether something works, its effectiveness. It's still a temptation, particularly I find with those coming from a more quantitative background, not just medicine, but any form of uh, health sciences or, or health um, uh, domains. That's that's what you're, you're brought up on. That's what you're trained in. Uh, that's what you're constantly being asked to read. And it's tempting to do this. And the most senior members of any organisation can still fall back to that tendency. And actually, I would suggest that if you put that little bit more energy into content, so describing what was done, what it looked like, what was the education, what materials were used, what learning outcomes. So you genuinely utilise those tools to make something useful and new out of the existing literature for the readers. You gain something. And back to our point of before, Elaine, you gain something that locally we can use. Uh, And along with that, the other element would be the how and why questions, those deeper um, um, clarification questions. It, It may be a lot of or a small amount of literature in a certain area but getting some insight into how and why certain elements of of primary choices in teaching have been effective can really be important for researchers moving forward and and I'm left thinking in the context of our handover review um, of of the role we found of multidisciplinary uh, teaching true authentic teams rather than simulated teams and that was something that hadn't been identified in my review on this six years ago and really stood out didn't it in our in our new literature and it's guided what you've designed moving forward locally yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose the opposite is the case with our non-technical skills review because there was so little literature but in choosing to take this level of synthesis we have been able to clearly identify what the gaps were and Absolutely. that in itself rather than just saying more literature is needed which is the common call of the systematic review define that put the responsibility on us well what does that mean 
What is that more literature? What specifically are those weaknesses? If I'm doing a paper tomorrow on this as a primary piece, what should I look to do to, to further push forward the knowledge base? Saying more is as much of a failure for us as anyone else if we don't qualify that. And we as systematic reviewers are best placed. And I guess the reason why this plea is so vital for a focus review is you've got a choice. In doing this, you are adding a little bit of synthesis work. And I would propose that in many contexts, putting a bit more energy into that synthesis to consider those more important questions in many ways and taking that energy away from a bigger review that's more expansive is a better use of your time. And it's going to give you an answer in terms of your final paper that's more utility, more readability and more use locally than if you chose to do the biggest review, the most expansive review on the topic that's ever been done. And that brings us nicely on to how you can help yourself get that content, which is our next tip from Dawn. And tip number seven is write to the authors. So all of us who have written academically at any point know that before something goes into the journal, there's as much on the cutting room floor, far more than ever makes it into the final cut that actually gets submitted. So the tip here is to contact those authors and find out something about the the bits of knowledge they have around this that didn't make it into the publication, but which could be fundamental to understanding their publication better or to understanding the context around it. So we could actually, with this, go back to some of our earlier tips and get them to give us some information about the local context. What was the particular driver for this? What did matter for the population? The chances are that in publishing, they'll have aimed for transferability, but there might be some really local context, which is a a really important key to unlock some information that could be very useful for the current review. Thinking about the local problems, what what did they really try to answer and, and what did their answer look like? How close did they get to that? And quite interestingly, what were the other questions they could have answered from this as they went along? And what were the other questions that it raised? So if you think back to some of the earlier tips, it actually gives you some clues of some of the things that you might gain from talking to the authors. Think about the information that they hold around that um, particular publication but also is the data that they didn't use um, or can they interpret the data in very different ways did they consider other types of synthesis and what could you learn from their rationale for going with the one they went with what's really interesting about this is that it has the potential and I work in a centre for learning in excellence um, excellence in learning and teaching it has the potential to start to develop communities of practice people who are sharing an interest in a particular subject and are not only reading each other's published work but entering into discourse with each other and that may well shape the further work of both parties and I think that's an absolutely vital point uh, and I can share a first hand experience we were talking about a recently done handover redo review to bring it up to date but my original review on handover published in medical education back in, in 2011 um, only had 10 papers that had ever published on it and interestingly if we think of a community of practice when I engaged with those authors that there was quite a paucity of, of useful stuff along those terms every one of the ones I wrote to every single one sent me stuff sent me material That's sent really me slides sent me Uh, learning outcomes, then sent me details about why they'd done it, what they'd done locally, all the sorts of things you're talking about that truly allowed my synthesis to become stronger. But more importantly, the next step I took from that is I invited them to a virtual roundtable discussion. I made them my 
uh, my almost my expert panel as part of this evolving community and that it was in turn vital in forming um, some of the works that went on um, theoretically looking at teaching in that area and some future pieces and, and in my own personal academic journey there it became that vehicle and so I can very much see how how you know for anyone doing a review once you get the papers don't just be held back by the limitations of what's out there in print remember this is the final piece as you say of a long journey a long journey where there are many stakeholders and particularly in the publishing realm stakeholders with their own needs and their own agendas and if you look past that and go back to those primary researchers who you have identified through a systematic process so you know they tick certain boxes that fit your question we can use them and use their skill to better better add to what comes in and in the context of a focused review because there is a smaller amount of literature that becomes very very powerful very powerful okay um and I suppose we're talking about focused literature and focus size, so that brings us on to the next tip, tip number eight, Elaine. Yeah, which actually links in with some things that Dawn was saying earlier as well. So tip number eight is getting the size right. Um, there are a lot of papers out there on many of the topics that uh, people may choose to do reviews on, but you can't possibly read everything and look at everything in great detail. So how do you actually focus that down? to the ones that are going to give you the best information. And we would suggest that somewhere between 10 and 20 papers seems to be a good amount. Any less than that, you're not getting a suitable amount of information. Any more than that, and it starts to become very difficult to handle. And I think this goes back to, again, some of the points that uh, Dawn had raised um, about, was it in tip seven, I think, yeah. No, tip six. Seven. Um, even tip five, uh, which was saying about you know keep it, keeping focused and yeah. uh, having having a project lead, and many of the things that uh, you raised there, I think also apply here. We don't all have vastly unlimited time. Mm-hmm. You can manage to do a good job of twenty papers. You can actually mm-hmm. have chance to read them through. Okay. You can keep your enthusiasm up. It's not psychologically daunting, as it can be at the start, when you think, oh goodness, I've got 7,000 hits here, what do I do with them? Um, And it means that you're going to get to the end of it, so you've got something that that becomes a manageable task that uh, that you're actually going to complete. And it's also relatively easy to synthesise the amount of information you're going to get out of that number of papers. If you start getting to 40 or 50 it becomes very difficult to meaningfully pull that together and get anything useful. So, well, yeah, I, it's, 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 I think it, I think it's probably I think it's probably the most important practical tip people will ask about if they're going to endeavour on this focused or rapid mm. model. Yeah. And I wonder if it's probably might be the most inflammatory. And I don't necessarily agree with that inflammatory um, uh, sort of response you may get. But the challenge may be. In doing so, in, in managing the review to become that size, have you not essentially mm. dropped quality? Yeah. Have you not become unsystematic or have you not missed something? And my challenge back would be exactly along the lines as you say, which is, you know, that challenge is not put in the context of any other primary research. Anyone doing a study with the number of participants looking at education, when you're looking at purposeful sampling, when you look at sample sizes generally to reach saturation, you know, there are ways that within the scientific method you can 
address those concerns. And from a systematic review component, the systematic component is made up of the transparency, the robustness and reproducibility of the methods, and the clarity of the question and the links of the methods to those questions. So as long as the conceits that we make are clearly described, as long as you understand why that question was clarified to be maybe more tight or more relevant to a local population, it makes sense. If you removed literature, so if we did limit it to acute settings, we explain why. We explain in the discussions the limitations that puts on the generalizability of results. That's fine. That's not a quality issue as far as I'm concerned. But in actual fact, if this opens up more people to doing this, I think your point about being able to do a good job of 10 or 20 papers is absolutely crucial. And, and most of the time, when you expand it to more, it isn't that you get better quality answers to questions or better, um, more true uh, sort of almost interpretations of that educational truth. Far from it. I think the, world, the water's become more muddied. You put in more variables, you put in more uncontrolled elements and you come up with a less clear answer and you get these more general reviews that have nice conclusions and they've got very much scale behind them but actually they don't give you the specific answers you want. So I think it's a good challenge. I've raised it obviously with an answer in mind but I don't see that as a barrier in anything. You know, it's going to be a barrier to people doing systematic review. It is those unmanageable sizes and the, the scale that comes and the absolute scope problems. So I, I think controlling this is vital. And I suppose that's something you really need to do at the start, at the tip sort of um, forend, the piloting, and when you've reflected your questions. But it also links into to, to tip nine, which is almost the other end of the spectrum. So Dawn, tip nine. Tip nine is to have a target journal in mind. And it fits very nicely with tip five about having a clear project lead. But this sort of goes even further back than that to thinking about where will this be the best fit uh, and to look at journals where this is likely to be published or would be a very good fit for publication. That's partly because there's a lot of work in trying to retrofit a publication or a review for a particular journal. If you know in advance what the criteria are for publication, if you know the preferred styles and so on, um, you're very clear on the readership, then that makes it far easier to make some of the decisions as you go, um, particularly around stylistic things and, and shaping and formulating the review as you go forward. It's quite important, I think, to be very clear if not on the specific journal, then at least on the target audience. I do a lot of work in interdisciplinary work, and there are many things that will fit very specifically within a, a criteria for a particular type of education or particular type of journal. But of course, if you decide at the outset this is going to be uh, fit for an interdisciplinary purpose, then that needs to be really apparent throughout because the journals are very specific in what they're looking for. So that, I think, is a good example of where you might tailor something quite clearly for one particular audience as you go forward. That, of course, does not preclude you um, looking at extending, reviewing, adapting, evolving your systematic review for other places. But I think it does make that trajectory from start to finish a much clearer path if in advance you know where you're going, where you're aiming at, and you're meeting the criteria very clearly as you go along. 
Okay, and that brings us to tip number 10. Um, a final tip, um, just really um, a, a cog in the wheel that can help you uh, quality-wise uh, when you're doing a focused or any systematic and that is to use the resource Prospero. Prospero was a funded UK initiative from the NIHR that's um, based out of a local institution in the UK, but essentially is international. And what they offer is a very similar repository to clinical trials databases. And it allows those who are doing any form of systematic review, uh, health uh, health education, or even wider, uh, to deposit a protocol. And why that's important is I talked about systematicness. And again, at no point in this discussion of focused real rapid reviews have we dropped quality by removing systematicity. Systematicity is still possible in a focused way. In fact, is more important. So if you have a plan, which is called a protocol, and you've defined that plan before following it, which is one of the key steps to systematic review. Depositing it, having a registration with a date of that deposit, is something that can be reflected in your final write-up, reflected for the readers in the future. They can then look at any changes and essentially have better faith in um, the scientific method of the systematic review. Uh, it's such an easy thing to do, just five minutes to register it on the database. The other thing is that database is a great resource for you to use yourself. If you type in health education, simulation education, medical education, etc., etc., you're going to find reviews uh, at the protocol stage from other authors that you can then use when you're trying to scope and write your own. So it has that double whammy. So Prospero would be my final tip. Uh, and that brings us to the end. So we have 10 tips. Number one, know the existing reviews in your area. Number two, think of the local context. Number three, think of the local problems you're trying to answer. Number four, pilot your search with a scoping search. Number five, have a very clear project lead and an engaged team for a very focused period so you can achieve efficiently. Number six, explore synthesis techniques more than uh, simply whether something works and in doing so increase the utility of your review. Number seven, always consider writing to the authors of your including papers because they have so much they may be willing to share. And number eight, look at the size of the review to get it in that sweet spot where it's still got utility and usefulness, but it's going to be achievable. Number nine, have your target journal in mind right at the beginning, so you're writing the right way with that right scholarly discourse. And finally, consider the resource of Prospero both to publish in and to help you in planning. So that is the end of our 10 tips for a focused or rapid review. Thank you so much for joining us, as always, for this Beamy podcast. And we hope to uh, join you again soon. In the notes attached for this, you will find links to the reviews mentioned. Certainly one of the reviews, the handover review, uh, Educational Interventions to Approve Handover in Healthcare and Updated Systematic Review, uh, has been published in Academic Medicine, is in press and will be available soon. And once the other one becomes available and accepted, we will also add links to that. Uh, any questions that come up, feel free to contact us at Beamy and we will see you again soon. Thank you.